You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of Yahweh, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and Yahweh gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated ten thousand of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him, and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites, who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field, and she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And Yahweh was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and Yahweh was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel, now the name of the city was formerly Luz, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man 
went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, that is, its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Aksib or of Helba or of Aphek or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back to the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Sha'albim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. Now the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bokim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of Yahweh spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bokim, and they sacrificed there to Yahweh. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that Yahweh had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Yahweh, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know Yahweh or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and served the Baals. And they abandoned Yahweh, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked Yahweh to anger. They abandoned Yahweh and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of Yahweh was against them for harm, as Yahweh had warned, and as Yahweh had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then Yahweh raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. 
yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of Yahweh, and they did not do so. Whenever Yahweh raised up judges for them, Yahweh was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For Yahweh was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of Yahweh as their fathers did or not. So Yahweh left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 699 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, August 27th, 2023, and those were the first two chapters of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Buckle up, because it's going to be a wild ride. It's quite a lot to take in this book, the book of Judges. There's a lot of sex and violence. I'm just going to warn you on the front end. There's a lot of sex and violence in the book of Judges, and at various points, it's disturbing stuff. What is described, it's sad, right? It's sad and disappointing and heartbreaking and frustrating, but this is also necessary. It's important for us to know these things so that we appreciate, one, how people are apart from God, and also how people are related to by God when they have turned away from him and when they have neglected his commands. It's good for us to understand human nature, even just a few generations removed from the promises of God being fulfilled in real time for everyone to see, for everyone to appreciate materially. But Notice here a little bit of repetition from the closing chapters of the book of Joshua. There's a retelling of the story of Caleb offering the hand of his daughter in marriage to whoever would go up against Kiriath Sefer and capture it. There's a retelling of the story of her asking her father for certain springs also of water in the Negeb and his giving her the springs, the upper springs and the lower springs. I don't know if there were any in-between springs, but that sounds like it was probably all of the springs given to his daughter and her new husband. But there's also perhaps a retelling of some things alluded to 
in the book of Joshua with regards to this or that tribe not having driven out the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. We see actually that retold and even expanded on to include more tribes. And it's one after another. This tribe didn't drive out the Canaanites, and this tribe didn't drive out the Canaanites, and this tribe didn't drive out the Canaanites. And then you have God, or it says the angel of Yahweh, which many believe to be Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. We have the angel of Yahweh saying, essentially, if I can paraphrase, fine. You know what the consequence is going to be for you not driving these Canaanites out? I'm not going to drive them out before you either. And now you get the consequences of them being a thorn in your side. They're going to test you. They're going to lead you astray. And we'll see which of you are for God. Which of you, like Joshua at the close, says, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Also interesting, there's so many interesting things in Judges, but another interesting thing is that the people of Israel followed Yahweh, they obeyed Yahweh, they submitted themselves to Yahweh while Joshua was still alive. And even after he died at the ripe old age of 110, they followed until all of the elders who had served with Joshua and alongside Joshua until all of them had passed away. And why is that? Were they serving Yahweh? Were they following Yahweh? Or were they following Joshua? Were they following these elders? Even if they had been too young to see these things themselves, they had heard about these things from Joshua and from the elders. And even right at the close before Joshua passes on, he gives a summary of how they got to now. In other words, Joshua and the other elders were reminding the people of God's providence, his delivery. Joshua had been a man in Egypt. He saw the full story unfold. He was one of the 12 spies Moses sent in to spy out the land of Canaan. And he was one of only two men, the other being Caleb, who was allowed in that generation to see the promised land. But that is to say, too, all the other elders of Israel were presumably not of that generation. They were younger men, significantly younger men, perhaps, even. And yet Joshua had told them, and they had taken note, Joshua had set their organization of their tribes on a firm foundation. And then they, in turn, it would seem, were reminding the people of how God had brought them out of Egypt and provided for and protected them in the wilderness for 40 years and had given them the promised land. But then when those elders passed on, when those elders died, who was reminding Israel? This kind of a thing we are very familiar with. If you think back to not just your parents' generation, but your grandparents' generation, your great-grandparents' generation, if you knew your great-grandparents, you were probably too young really to get a lot out of them as far as stories from when they were growing up. Maybe you've heard a few things from your grandparents about when their parents were young, but probably not as much. It doesn't take but three or four generations 
for cultural memory to grow dim unless the in-betweensies are being faithful to pass on to their children and their grandchildren what they heard from their parents and their grandparents. And when the cultural memory grows dim, that's when you start to see backsliding. You start to see reinventing the wheel. Oh, wait a second. How do we do this? Yeah, my great-grandparents knew how to do these kinds of things. My great-grandparents maybe encountered these kinds of situations and circumstances and problems. But by then, if everybody who was old enough to show you, hey, this is how this is done, this is how you do it, has passed on, well, now you're just figuring it out again. And maybe you figure it out and maybe you suffer just like their generation suffered before you. A very interesting way to look at this has come to me by way of Neil Howe and William Strauss in Generations and The Fourth Turning. They're known for the Strauss-Howe generational theory, which says that certainly at least American history can be divided up into seculums. And within a seculum, you have four generations in a repeating pattern and also four generational phases. You've heard people perhaps say, or you've maybe seen the meme, strong men make for good times, good times make for weak men, weak men make for hard times, hard times make for strong men, something like that. That's essentially a good summary of the Strauss-Howe generational theory. And we see some of that playing out here in the story of God bringing Israel out of Egypt, that first generation that comes out, they grumble, they murmur, they complain, they're stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they want to kill the men God has put in positions of authority over them, elect new leadership, go back to Egypt. Why should we die in the wilderness? At least we would have had someplace to be buried back in Egypt. At least we had variety for food and on and on and on. Lots of complaining. God has them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all that complaining, grumbling, stiff-necked generation passes away. But then the next generation is a better crop. It's a better generation for the purposes of not grumbling, not complaining, not being stiff-necked, and being brought into the promised land. Even perhaps the next generation after is coming of age as Joshua and Caleb are still telling the stories. So this would presumably be the generation of the grandchildren of Joshua and Caleb. They're following after. They listened to their parents. But then what's their reason? What kind of a following after is it? That when Joshua and when that generation of elders, which would be the next generation, the elders of Israel were the next generation down from Joshua and Caleb, when that generation and the next generation pass away, the following generation does not obey Yahweh. They don't follow after Yahweh. They do their own thing. They start succumbing to the Canaanites and the worship of these false gods, the Baals, that is lords. Baal means lord, which is why it's significant that Yahweh is referred to as Lord of Lords, which is to say he is the God above all gods, the King above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. If there are any other lords or kings or gods, Yahweh 
created them and gave them a finite amount of power and authority, while he reserves all authority, all power to himself. And yet, that next generation down, they don't obey. They don't submit. They don't follow after. They don't trust. They don't love. They forget themselves in short order after Joshua has passed on, after the elders who served under Joshua and the next generation down have passed on, which is to say, you have a couple of generations into this story of Moses bringing the people out of Egypt. And oh, by the way, one could reasonably suppose that Moses is still another generation. So you have perhaps now three generations, and then a fourth generation is more similar to Moses' generation, the grumbling generation, the complaining generation, the generation that wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron, get us back to Egypt. That's what sets the stage for the book of Judges. Yes, they're in the promised land. And for all intents and purposes, it's going to be like they're back in Egypt because of how they've forgotten God and turned away from God and turned to serve other gods. It'll be as bad and in some ways worse than when they were in Egypt because they will have forsaken Yahweh and his commandments. The book of Judges is filled with sexual assault and depredation and violence, killing, graphic depictions of violence. It's like a pendulum swinging back and forth and back and forth with these judges. And God is with the judges, it says, but the people don't listen to the judges. God has compassion on the people. And so there's a common grace element here. And he delivers the people from those who oppress them, but they just keep on being oppressed. Why? Because they don't serve Yahweh faithfully and worship him alone. And so they are given over to plunderers. They're given away to oppressors in their midst. And that is to say, when you see that a people is plundered and oppressed, you should not be surprised to find that their love for God is lacking. Their obedience to God, their trust in God, their studying of his word, meditating on it day and night is lacking. When they are oppressed and given over to being plundered all the time, and that is just a feature of their existence for years and decades and generations, well, that's a cue that you should probably take a close look at what is their theology. Their theology should inform their anthropology. Their anthropology including but not being limited to a conception of justice, their theology, also having a political aspect, as in, how do we make decisions together? Well, if we give no thought to what God has said or who God is or what God made us and why he put us here, our political theology is going to be very poor. It's going to be more like political atheism than sound political theology. But the judges, whew, the judges will be interesting to talk through because they are very odd characters, some of them, and very puzzling for why God uses them. He's working with only imperfect people all throughout the Bible, except in the person of Jesus. All we have else, all we have besides is imperfect people, but still the judges, some of them are real pieces of work. And it's good for us to appreciate that, to know that. One, because 
maybe it's cathartic. Maybe we see certain things, certain aspects of how they were and how they suffered and how the people suffered as a result. And then we say, let's not do that. Let's not be that way. Let's confess our sins because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's do that so that we have a better life, so that we have life indeed, so that we're free, so that we're free indeed. It's going to be real. It's going to be very interesting. And I'm looking forward to going through the book of Judges. I think it's going to be very instructive for where we're at right now in America, in the 2020s. But that said, let's talk a little bit about where we are right now in the U.S. And on a lighter note, speaking of plunderers, I'll play for you a parody response to Oliver Anthony's song right now, Making the Rounds, Richmond, North of Richmond, brought to you by Reason Magazine and Harambe over at Not The Bee. Here it is, cut one. I'll play the whole thing for you. A little less than two and a half minutes long. Take a listen. I've been working till the break of 4.45. I get an automatic raise and I can't be fine. Must wait till age 57 till I can retire with an inflation-adjusted pension that continuously keeps going higher. Oh, it's a damn shame. What the world's come to, they want us back in the office on Mondays too. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is not living in the real world. It's a lot harder than you'd know. Sure, I got dental, but it's bad I go mental. Cause I had to fill out both of these forms. I also see price hikes on necessities. I had to purchase my rental in Ocean City. Please don't tell anyone. It's so embarrassing, the plight of real. Man, north of Richmond. Hey, we have to have cameras on for today's meeting. I just sit here a wasting my whole life away. Cause this verification code is taking all day. How do you expect me to check my 401k? Plus, my fudge round supplier no longer takes Apple Pay. Oh, it's a damn shame. What the world's come to It takes one person to do my job So we have to Wish I could just wake up And it not be true But it is Oh, it is Not living in the real world Is a lot harder than you know Sure, I got health care But I get an in-depth scare Only weeks left to open and roll New guy plays with he just sits there and snaps How am I to get in on my 2 p.m. naps? They want us back now on Tuesdays I just might collapse The plight of rich man North of rich man We're just like you Ah, yes, very funny Very funny And also sad Also <laughs> sad Uh you can't see it if you're just listening to the audio, but the guy singing is dressed in a very business government employee fashion. 
And it looks like he's sitting in some office building in DC or what have you. He's sitting there playing his guitar, going out into lovely forests also occasionally, but he's obviously not some guy who lives in the backwoods. He's not somebody who has worked blue collar jobs. He went to college. He went to university straight out of college, straight out of university. He went to work for the government and he makes up part of the overbloated bureaucracy, the bureaucratic state in the federal government. And it's a lot harder than you can know. (laughs) Not living in the real world, he sings. But this is actually, I think, a type of plunderer. I think it's a type of oppression when a government grows so large that a major part of your economy, so-called, is the people who regulate and audit and tax and inspect and fine and prosecute and jail. I think this is a type of legal plunder, as Frederick Bastiat would say in the law. It's socialistic. It's not in keeping with the vision of our founding fathers. Now, that's not to say it's all or nothing. It's not to say you have no regulation, and that would be the answer to everything, because that can be every man doing what is right in his own eyes, because there's no king in Israel. So we should have civil authority. We absolutely should. The anarchists, whether they're libertarian or they're leftist anarchists, all alike are mistaken. They don't have a very good political theology either. And yet, what is the role of the governing authority? To reward those who do what is good, to punish those who do what is evil. Is it a good thing for every move you make to be monitored, to be notated, to be regulated, to be taxed? Is that a good thing for the soul? Is it a good thing for your mind? Is it a good thing for your health and well-being? No, no, it's not. It's oppressive. And not only is it oppressive, but when every action, if it's not going to be scrutinized to the end of you being arrested and hauled into court, if every action could potentially bring with it a fine, when every profitable action is taxed to the hilt, that's oppressive. We know that. And again, going back to the book of Judges, which we've just begun, it's a thorn in the side. It is a test of your patience and your spirituality that if you are an American, you live under constant surveillance, your private communications. If not being sifted right now, could at any moment, without your knowledge, be snatched up by some bureaucrat in some department, any department of the U.S. federal government, and scrutinized. And they can go on a fishing expedition to look for, maybe possibly, are you cheating on your taxes or failing to abide by some law you've never heard of, some regulation you've never heard of, maybe some you have. This is downstream of what we have come to theologically and what our anthropology is as well. Our theology informs our anthropology. Our anthropology includes, but is not limited to our political theology. This oppressive level of taxation and regulation is a result of bad theology. It just is. On a brighter note, though, and not just dark humor, parody songs of soulful 
Virginians bemoaning the shame of Richmond, north of Richmond. I'll play for you cut two here, brought to you by The Blaze on Twitter with a tweet that is embedded in a post over at Not The Bee from Not The Bee staff just yesterday. Mandatory Tucker rant. I wouldn't call it a rant, by the way. I think he's just being honest. About modern life, nature, and cities. Here it is. Cut two. Take a listen. The people running the United States are no longer even pretending to offer a better life to the people who live there, which is a huge change. I mean, throughout the course of my life until fairly recently, we had people I voted for in office, people I would never vote for in office, but all of them made basically the same promise. Elect me, give me power, and I will make your life better. And here's how I'll do it. I never hear anybody make that case in the United States. And what they're offering is a world in which human flourishing is, if not impossible, very difficult. The ruling party is the party of the childless, the unmarried, the people who are working for low wages for large corporations and living in tiny apartments in overcrowded cities that are rife with crime. That's not a cliche. That's true. It's not a talking point. It's true. Who votes for the people who run the United States right now? People who are, again, working for big nonprofits or big banks, living in crowded conditions, very often alone, in big soulless cities, having their food delivered by immigrants, and spending their time glued to a screen. What does that sound like to you? It sounds like prison, actually. It sounds like prison. When people violate our laws in the United States, how do we punish them? Well, we execute a few, not very many. But mostly, our harshest punishment is locking them in a small cell where they can't see the sky, where their food is delivered through the bars, often by immigrants, from the commissary, which is the Uber Eats of prison, where they have to sit cut off from nature and in solitude for years. Well, that's the life of your average Democratic voter. Solitude, isolation, cut off from nature. Who are the people who oppose this? And some of them are Republicans. You're not going to hear me say word one in support of the Republicans, by the way, who have collaborated in the most dishonorable possible way with the Biden administration. So instead of saying Republican, I will describe them as anyone who's not with the program, which is the majority of people in my country. Where do they live? And more important, how do they live? Well, they're poorer generally on paper, but are their lives worse? If you live in a place where you can see the sky, where you can make your own food and maybe even know where it comes from, if you can go outside and say, identify three species of trees or hear birds, or experience silence, the rarest commodity in the modern world, silence, where you can hear voices that aren't being broadcast from NBC News or Google, maybe higher voices. Those are the people who are not with the program. Okay, so notice what Tucker is saying here. He's pointing out that the ruling party right now, the Democratic Party, is empowered by representative of those who are unmarried, those who are childless in many cases, those who work for low wages and they live 
in the cities. They live in something like a prison in the big cities. Now, I don't know if I would go as far as he goes in describing them as soulless, but I would say that in contrast to the other people, the people who are held in contempt, who live out in the countryside, who actually live with wives and children, with trees and birds and deer (laughs) grazing in the fields beside their house, the people who farm or they ranch or they help to support the agricultural industry or they drive truck and they see the countryside from behind the steering wheel of a big rig or they work in oil and gas or they work in mining. You know, those people predominantly are the ones who vote Republican and who consider themselves to be conservatives. And what are they conserving? They're trying to conserve this way of life where you can see the stars at night, where you can actually hear the sound of the grass blowing in the wind. You can hear the sound of insects serenading one another in the pasture back behind your house. If you're not talking to your wife, if you're not listening to your children playing happily, those people are trying to conserve that. And what's so fascinating is the people who live in the cities are primarily the ones freaking out about the environment. And they're the least in touch with the environment. The ones who are so much into environmentalism are the ones who have been so disconnected. But then maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's envy. And maybe actually those of us who have spent a good deal of our lives out in the country who are from, like I am, places like Glendive, Montana, who have spent quite a lot of time out in nature, thank you very much, doing our work, providing for our families. People like us are like, hey, you know, your your idea of conserving the environment looks an awful lot, sounds an awful lot like destroying my ability to provide for my family. And maybe that's lost on you in part because you don't have but little potted plants here and there to remind you that there is such a thing as nature. You have to go to the planetarium or go to IMAX or whatever to see the stars. You have to look them up on your smartphone or on your computer or watch a documentary about them on TV. You have to have Neil deGrasse Tyson spoon feed you every little thing you know about the cosmos. And maybe, just maybe, those of us who live in the country should feel pity for those who multi-generationally have been locked into a rather soulless and atomized view of society. You know, I'm still working my way through this book, The Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy R. Piercy. And I've had some critical things to say. I will tell you, I'm still going to work through the book. I'm still going to listen to the whole thing. I want to give her a fair hearing. I want to consider what she has to say. But it's interesting to me, what I've read since I last shared with you anything about the book at all, She's getting into the history of the West since the Industrial Revolution. And what did the Industrial Revolution do? It didn't just change the dynamic as far as those who are at the very top, those who make the decisions, who patronize the arts, those who run for political office and then write the laws, execute the laws, interpret the laws, those who run the corporations. It didn't just make those people more wealthy and more powerful relative the common man, but it also, at the same time, as she points out in her fascinating narrative here, 
it broke up families. The Industrial Revolution took husbands and fathers out of homes where they worked in a trade they probably learned from their fathers before them. It took husbands and fathers out of farms where they were plowing the fields and raising the livestock right alongside their wives and their children. They were there to instruct their children and talk with their wives and attend to things together. And it put them in loud, dirty, dangerous environments filled with predominantly other men in the cities. And according to Nancy R. Piercy, when this first started to shift, there were a lot of people who were commenting on it in real time, very concerned about what the effect would be on the morals of men to be away from their wives and their children. What would be the effect on the psychology, the mental and emotional and spiritual health of men to not be engaged like they had been for all of human history to that point in loving their wives, in instructing their sons and their daughters, working alongside them. And oh, by the way, this is very, very important for us to understand in relation to what Tucker is describing here. The Industrial Revolution fed directly into the feminization of the church and women's suffrage and the atomization of the individual. The Industrial Revolution fed directly like a beeline into the breakdown of families, not just in the US, but also in the West more generally, in the industrialized world, in the developed world, as we call it, more broadly. Because what do you have? Before the Industrial Revolution, you have fathers and husbands, particularly informed by God's word, discipling their sons and daughters, giving them religious instruction, catechizing them, being regarded as the ones primarily responsible to catechize their children, talking through the Bible with their wives. And then when a decision needed to be made together with the rest of the community, it was the husbands and fathers as heads of household who went and met with the other heads of households to discuss, to confer, because they represented their household. Part of how they were able to represent their household effectively, practically, and even emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, is that they, day in, day out, were working alongside their wives and their children, even as they were providing, their wives and their children were seeing them provide. And if a threat came along, they were right there to protect. You didn't have to have a police state. Call the police. Why? My husband's just upstairs. Don't try anything, (laughs) a woman might say to an intruder causing trouble. Men had purpose and belonging, and for that matter, so did wives and mothers, so did children. Sons and daughters had purpose and belonging in the family unit, in the household. The Industrial Revolution upended that, taking husbands and fathers out of the home, putting them in cramped, constrictive, soul-crushing conditions day after day for low wages. And, oh, by the way, every innovation they might find that would be labor-saving, time-saving, resource-saving, All of it enriched the men who owned the factories or owned the corporation that owned the factories, thereby eliminating one of the major drivers of innovation, which was previously in more of an agrarian society or trades-based where men worked from the home to produce what they produced. If they could save time, if they could come up with an innovation that cut the time to produce something in half, what could they do with the other half of that? time that they otherwise were spending producing this 
finished good for a customer or feeding these animals or watering them or whatever. With the, us, with, the, with the rest of the time, they could sit down and read. They could read the Bible, for instance. They could study God's word. They could study works of theology. They could study works of political philosophy. They could read about speeches. They could read about the Greeks and the Romans. They could read about what was happening in other countries or around the world. They could enrich their minds and their souls. They could give instruction to their sons and their daughters about what they were reading. They could talk things over with their wives and come to a consensus about here's what we need from the community and this is what we should be contributing to the community. Here's what we see. And then when they went to represent their household, just like we read about in the Bible, they really did represent their household. It was an informed opinion. By contrast, the Industrial Revolution saw men taken out of that context and then women left to just maintain the vestiges of what previously had been the family's habitation, their land, their inheritance that they would pass on to the next generation after them, their means of sustenance, but also their place of instruction, their place of cultivation, their place of leisure and rest. Women left to maintain those places, according to Nancy R. Piercy, then also became the ones primarily responsible for catechizing children. And then, oh, by the way, as they increasingly were the ones catechizing the children and the fathers weren't around to be able to do that, Christianity increasingly shifted towards a more feminine emphasis. And men, as men were working alongside other men all the time who might be rough, constantly jockeying for position, intuitively knowing that they should have dominion over something, but they don't have dominion over everything. And so they're constantly trying to have dominion over one another or not have somebody trying to dominate them. Men coming out of that context were bifurcated, according to Nancy R. Piercy. And so they drink too much. And next thing you know, you've got women who have come to see themselves as the guardians of morality and piety, enlisting the help of the clergy to promote abolition and the temperance movement. And oh, by the way, as Nancy R. Piercy points out, it was always the women criticizing the vices of men. That's how it all started. It was the women's societies trying to reform men in the community. And no longer do you have the men actually representing as heads of households coming straight from the farm, straight from their home, where they were probably discussing things with their wife and their children. You no longer have men being the heads of households. Now you have the atomized individual. And the woman isn't getting the vote or accomplishing some big political reform in society, chiefly because she's a woman, but because she's an individual. And that feeds directly into this progressive wish-casting utopianism because everything's falling apart, but the way you keep people continuing to show up to the factory and then also getting the women to show up to the factory as well, especially when you have World War I and World War II or the Civil War, the way you get the women to show up is you say, there's no point to staying home. And part of how you do that or you accommodate that already having been done is you send the children off to an industrialized approach to instruction. Instead of it being organic, instead of it being familial, instead of it being 
something which contributes to filial piety and the obedience to or the adherence to. Children, honor your father and your mother. Give heed to, listen to the instruction and the teaching of your mother and your father that your days in the land may be long. Instead of that, you have children being put into a very materialistic approach to education where, oh, by the way, they're going to accidentally forget themselves now and again and call their teacher mom or dad because they're thinking of, they're feeling about their public school teacher the way that they should be feeling and thinking about their mom and their dad. And for all of human history up until the last few centuries, they would have. They did. And yet the way you keep everybody humming along, especially if you own the factory or if you own the corporation that owns these factories, the way you keep everybody going back to the factory, men and women, or going back to the office away from their home is you say, this is better. This is in the end going to solve all the problems. We'll cure poverty and mental illness and substance abuse and criminality by these means. But then what if actually the rise, the sharp uptick in those ills of society is a direct result of the extent to which you've already industrialized the family? You've taken the father out and now you've introduced labor-saving devices so that the mother and the wife can keep up with maintaining the home without her husband there. You've introduced distracting devices so that the children will be occupied while the mother tries to get some things done or catch her breath because the father's not there to enforce any kind of discipline or give instruction. Hey, sit the kids down in front of this educational program even instead of, and let's prefer that, to the father sitting his children down and talking to them and explaining things to them. Pretty soon, what you have is what we have. The atomized individual living in big cities where they don't see the sunshine, they can't hear the bugs serenading one another in the tall grasses as they blow in the wind. When's dad going to be home? No idea. Mom, why are you crying? I'm fine. Go watch your movie. And this is where we're at. And the irony of ironies is the people who are still trying to conserve what can be conserved, who want to have strong families and strong local communities, are demonized in the corporate news media. And oh, by the way, there is another industrialized approach to what typically would have been handled closer to home. When Neil Postman writes Amusing Ourselves to Death and How to Watch TV News, he's writing an analysis of the Industrial Revolution commandeering how you get info about what's relevant or what is perceived to be relevant or what you're supposed to think of as relevant to your daily affairs. But then as increasingly everything is decided by some middle manager, some pencil pusher, as some policy or another at your corporation will speak to what you must do next, as the SOP, step three, four, five, six, seven, takes all creativity, all innovation, all thought, all intentionality, all pride, all sense of accomplishment, all personal growth and development and expression out of your daily business. Increasingly, what do you do? You vote for people who are going to have that same industrialized corporate mindset to running your city, running your state, running your country. No longer does the head of the household know what is going on with his wife. He doesn't know where she's at during the day while he's off at the factory. He has no idea. And then next thing you know, 
you have Margaret Sanger, a very loose woman, very loose, a horrible woman, one of the worst villains in modern times, if not all of world history. You have Margaret Sanger forming the Birth Control League. Why do the women need birth control right after they have taken the liquor away from the men and gotten themselves the right to vote? Because now the women are joining the workplace right alongside the men, not their husbands, by the way. Odds are very slim to none that they are working alongside their husbands all day. Now the women want birth control. They're demanding birth control. And again, this is an expression of the breakdown of the family. And not in the last five years, not in the last 15 years, not in the last 100 years. We're talking since the Industrial Revolution. This is just building and building and building. Women getting pregnant by men who are not their husband, whether they're married or they're not married, and then wanting to not be known for having this man's baby. And then if they have children with their husbands, after all, being told, even if they want to stay home, that they are missing out on their potential. They're miserable. We should apply pressure. It's a woman's right to choose, if you'll notice, always right up until the moment that she chooses to want to be a submissive wife to her husband. That's oppressive, but somehow her submitting to some middle manager at an office building all day, that's not oppressive. No, that's empowering. No, it's not empowering. It's not empowering. It's very dangerous. When a woman has more reverence for, more respect for, more submission for some manager at the company she works for than she does for her own husband and she's married, she has more love for her coworkers and her customers than she does for her own children. And by this, I'm not talking emotions. I'm talking effectively, who does she listen to? Who does she submit to? And who does she love on all day? When that's the way of things, it breeds resentment in husbands. And it, thanks to no-fault divorce, most of the time leads to the wife just saying she's not happy anymore. Why? Because she doesn't respect her husband. Why doesn't she respect her husband? Well, in part, it's not because he is so contemptible. He might be doing exactly what the church was telling him and spiritualizing him doing for a century. In fact, as the church becomes more feminized through industrial transformation of society, the best men who are going to stick around, you're told, are the ones who adopt these feminine expressions of Christianity. We get away from a firm, manly, assertive, fearful expression of Christian faith. And increasingly, oh, by the way, we have angels even being portrayed as women. Have you ever wondered, I'm fascinated, absolutely fascinated, riveted by Nancy R. Piercy going here. Have you ever wondered why and when angels started to be portrayed in art or like the TV show when I was a kid in the 90s, touched by an angel? The stars of the show who are angels, supposedly, according to the story, are women. Every time angels show up in the Bible, the preferred pronouns are masculine, male. And what do they typically tell whoever it is that they've come to deliver good news to from Yahweh God? They say, fear not. Why? Because otherwise you would be afraid because they're scary, because they're dangerous. They're not to be trifled with. One of the transformations of Christian faith that you can look to as a clue for about when this shift happened and how that coincides with the Industrial Revolution, the shift away from more agrarian family units and communities towards living in the cities, crowded, cramped, 
everybody on top of one another, is look at when angels started to be portrayed as uber feminine in the prime of life, right about the age that women would be giving birth and having children and raising children. Oh, by the way, not coincidentally. But then the men who are the good men, the good boys, so to speak, are the ones who are supposed to submit most successfully to this soul-crushing, industrialized approach to organizing the family and the home and the community and society and their work and their worship and everything. And yet, what do women find? On the front end, they think that's such a great idea. Why? Because they win. Supposedly, that will be protective towards them. Supposedly, that will lead to them being provided for better. But actually, in fact, especially if they work around more assertive men who actually have authority or who own the company, what do they find? And this is what the MGTOW manosphere, so-called, comments on quite a lot. What they find is naturally, just speaking in biological terms, particularly relevant if we're increasingly godless and secular and atheistic in our way of deciding these things increasingly, the women who go off to work and they have a more assertive man who actually has authority and he actually has means and he actually makes the decisions of the day-to-day for how everybody's going to operate and she's actually submitting to him on a regular basis. She finds that he makes her less content with her husband who just does the submissive thing. He goes to work nine to five, punches in, follows orders, follows the SOPs, comes home and he's still in that mode because how can you ask him to be two different people after all? That's not fair. That's not reasonable. But then also, how can you ask her to be two different people? She comes home from work still thinking about how much she respects and admires this man who is not her husband because functionally, he's fulfilling more of the role for her that historically for most of human history would have been fulfilled by her husband in the home or her husband on the farm working alongside her. And so Margaret Sanger makes major, major advances arguing for the legalization of birth control. And ultimately now we have Planned Parenthood, which is to say planned obsolescence of parenthood. And now we have serial monogamy and we have no fault divorce and we have broken homes. We have children growing up without fathers in the picture at all. Because at a certain point after so many generations of this, it doesn't take very, very long to have the same solutions being applied to problems which the very solutions themselves created in the first place. But all the while, who is donating to the people that actually are going to be making the laws, passing the laws, overseeing, regulating, increasingly taxing ever more and more, but also monitoring for compliance? Every man jack. Who is being represented disproportionately on the debate stage when the GOP has a debate on Fox News, which you're not allowed to play more than three minutes of video or audio from for the first, I think, week or two weeks after the debate, and then whatever, right? Play as much as you want. We'll have moved on by then. It's the people who either own the factories or they own the corporations that own the factories, or they've inherited multi-generational vast fortunes, vast sums of money, as well as having been brought up with this social Darwinist approach. We look with horror, appropriately, rightly so, on the system of slavery in the South prior to the Civil War. And a lot of us, not all, but a lot of us, most of us, I would say, believe that the Union cause was justified because it brought an end to how 
black Americans who were slaves in the South had been treated for generations. And we see, and in fact, the left readily agrees, there is a corrosive effect on the soul of men and women and their children and family units to generations of the master just taking any woman who was a slave of his and doing with her whatever he wanted, getting her pregnant, raising the child as just another one of the slaves, selling the husband off to this plantation and selling the wife off to a different plantation, breaking up families. If the husband started to act out appropriately, reasonably so, he was what? Flogged, tortured, often enough killed. All slaves alike not being taught to read. In fact, it was illegal to teach them to read. Why? Because if you teach them to read, next thing you know, they're going to be organizing and maybe figuring out how to not be slaves anymore. And we don't want that. That's dangerous. As horrified as we appropriately are about that, did you know one of the rebuttals coming from the South to this indignation that the abolitionists were expressing in the decades leading up to the Civil War in the U.S., one of their rebuttals was, yeah, but look at wage slaves in American cities in the North. Look at the industrialists and how they keep their factory workers locked in poverty. On the one hand, forced to work in hard conditions, dangerous conditions, long hours, destroying their bodies in the factories for low wages, even as they pay those wages back very often to the same folks that they're working for in the factories because they're renting homes or apartments more to the point from the factory owners who have so much money. Why wouldn't they invest in real estate and diversify? You give that time and pretty soon you have central banking as well as we know it. And you have the people who own the factories and the people who own the apartment buildings and the people who make the political decisions all alike deciding, you know, it would be really great. Central banking. Let's not even have an individual man's ability to borrow money to start a company or build a house or start a farm, expand his ranch. Let's not even have that being handled really truly at the local level because what if that bank fails? No, no. I think their bigger concern was what if that bank succeeds? What if those individual men end up taking market share away from the people who have and want to protect their very cushy arrangement? The ones who make you sign forms when you hire on with their company. Any innovations, any inventions. And I've, I've had to sign documents like this to take jobs working for big oil and gas companies. Any invention that you produce while you work with us will actually be the intellectual property of the company. How messed up is that? And then, and I'm staring at it on my shelf right now, Moreau's book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, brings it full circle. Because even as you have the industrialists disproportionately being represented in the legislature or in the governor's mansion or in the White House or in the courthouse, because they get those people who are in those places into those places one way or another, or they get them out of there if they don't like them, they also, these very wealthy people, can get quite a lot of deference, quite a lot of sway among Christians if they donate or tithe or give an offering or buy a parsonage and set up 
the pastor, and I've seen this. I saw this in Eastern Montana, by the way. This is one of the hardest things I've ever gone through. I was a deacon at a church where a wealthy family in the community, they built the church. They'd been there for generations. They'd been in the community for generations. They had a lot of money. They owned that church, and therefore they owned anybody who was pastor there. And so the pastor, if they acted up, would make everybody else just accommodate. Oh, I know. Yeah, Matthew 18 says such and such, but I don't think that would be a good idea. Yeah, why? Are these not fellow Christians? Oh, I see. Partiality. Right. Okay. Yep, yep. This is what James was talking about. Oh, by the way. But it gets better. And by better, I mean it gets worse because very often the women being the ones who showed up, they got custom sermons because disproportionately they're the ones who need to be fed. That's the way it was rationalized by so many pastors and so many seminaries and so many denominations. The women are the ones who are actually showing up. Their husbands, deadbeats, probably home drunk, probably at home watching porn or football. We should preach another sermon about how those husbands and fathers who do show up need to stay under our watchful gaze and be more like the ladies, be more like the girls so to speak. The men who stick around and they submit to that in far too many cases, and here I'm speaking on the macro, I'm not speaking about one church in particular that I've been to over the years, but I observe and I've studied this out and I'm looking at it. There's no getting around the stats. However happy some may be with the current arrangement, there's no getting around the fact that the breakup of the family unit, the household as a core unit of the community or of society has been in many cases spiritualized and defended in the name of progress. And the solutions we throw at all the ills that are attendant with disempowering and disrespecting and oppressing husbands and fathers, all of the solutions we throw at that ironically make the problem still worse. And so it's the gift that keeps on giving. You make the problem worse by applying the same solutions to the problem that caused the problem in the first place, you will never run out of either the problem or <laughs> an appetite to apply those same solutions. And oh, by the way, this is part of what is so fascinating about our opportunity post-COVID. I know that the globalists, the folks who have owned the factories and the corporations and the politicians for generations, I know that the social Darwinists and the eugenicists want to do this great reset thing where not even the illusion that you own anything or make decisions for yourself will be left. And you'll be happy. You will be happy. We will make sure. We will re-educate you. We will surveil you to make sure you're smiling sufficiently. Or we'll quarantine you if you're not happy till we figure out how to make you happy or euthanize you. I know they have their designs on what the next six or seven years looks like. But listen to me when I say... Men and women coming back home to work remote and then being told here recently by a lot of corporations, a lot of, I would say, oppressive, tyrannical, extraordinarily selfish and short-sighted business owners and managers, CEOs, you must come back to the office. Why? Because we have to make sure you're working. Well, wait a second. Shouldn't you be able, if I'm able to work remote, shouldn't you be able to check whether I'm meeting my deadlines remotely? And oh, by the way, what if now you have husbands and fathers who both alike with their wives and the mothers are working from home 
And they decided to homeschool their kids because they are terribly, terribly concerned, and they should be, about their children being molested or raped or murdered at school, getting hooked on drugs and alcohol at school, becoming godless, being destroyed. And so now they've decided to pull their kids out, homeschool them. Now they're homeschooling their child even as they work from home remote. And the responses to this would make you wonder how anything is ever going to get any better. What I mean by that is some people are saying, oh yeah, you know, I'm not paying my employees to work from home even as they are taking care of their children. That's not what I pay them for. That's not, that, that's not going to work. That's ridiculous. That's just not how things are done. What's well, a kind of conservatism, but it's conserving a horrible, soul-crushing, family-destroying status quo that really is as recent as the Industrial Revolution. It has not been for all that long, in the grand scheme of things, it's not been for that long that we took husbands and fathers and then subsequently mothers and wives out of the home, off of the farm, threw them in cramped office buildings, soulless cubicles, standing at the machinery in some factory, some noisy factory, instead of working side by side with one another, even as they taught, instructed their sons and their daughters. Now, here's the crazy thing too. Someone recently, I won't say who, someone recently told my sons who've just started playing football for Dayspring Academy here in Greeley, Dayspring Christian Academy. And oh, by the way, there's a little bit of a kerfuffle, it turns out, among some of the parents who have sent their kids to the Christian school about how many homeschoolers from the larger Greeley area are playing sports for Dayspring. Oh, well, that's not fair. My little Johnny or Susie isn't in good enough shape to make the team when all these homeschoolers who are in good shape in the surrounding area take all the spots. Well, maybe your kid should try harder. Maybe your kid should get in better shape. Sorry. But one of the kids on this football team reportedly, according to my son, told him that homeschoolers are not as smart as kids who go to school all day because homeschoolers only do their schoolwork for three hours. And the kids who go to school all day are there for eight hours. To which my son replied, because he's second generation homeschooled at this point. Yeah, no, I think we might be smarter because we get our work done in three hours instead of eight. We're more efficient, which is a great reply. He's not in trouble at all with me. That's exactly right. Speaking from experience, I used to be terribly insecure that most kids in the public schools and the Christian schools were going to school eight hours a day. Why are they going to school eight hours a day? Because their moms and their dads are going to work eight hours a day. That's why. Because their moms and their dads work full-time jobs. That's why they go to school eight hours a day. That's why the kids go to school full-time. Is that how God made us? Is that how God designed us? No. No, indeed. But thanks again, industrialization. Thanks again, social Darwinists. Thanks again, progressives. Creating problems that then you have ever more profitable solutions to calling us dangerous. If we say, ah, no, I'm good. I'll skip your problem and your solution both alike. Thank you very much. He's already got one. (laughs) As the French knight says when King Arthur and his knights of the round table come asking his Lord, whether he would like to join them on a quest to get the Holy Grail. He's already got one. Already got one. (laughs) 
If parents, here's a riddle for you. If parents are working 40 hours a week from home, and I do, I work 40 hours a week, not always from home. I sometimes do need to actually go into the office to work alongside people because there's certain equipment there that we want to plug into and watch in person. But there are plenty of work weeks I've had in the last three years where I work 100% from home. I need to get out every now and then to do something else, run an errand just to get out of the house because I'm working remote so much. But if I put in 40 hours a week, there are more than 40 hours in a week. And oh, by the way, if the work is getting done at a high level, what's it to you? It's none of your damn business whether I took my 15-minute break to help my son with his math. Get out of here with this, well, that's not what we hired you for. That's not appropriate. That's not professional. Now, listen, historically, Protestant theory with regards to three spheres, magisterial Protestantism, would tell you, yes, the person who owns a business has some authority. The person who owns a business does not have authority that supersedes my authority as a father or a husband over my wife and my children, over my household. You say, oh, the civil authorities, they regulate things and they, they have authority. Yes. And the public school in District 6 in Weld County, Colorado, is not a father to my children or a husband to my wife. No, I'm not going to send my wife to go and speak with the school board and ask them, hey, please, on hands and knees, petitioning, please have mercy on my child. No, no, we're going to skip your problems. We're going to skip your solutions, both alike. And we will help to make the vision that once was healthy and vibrant and flourishing, human flourishing, realistic before your very eyes. We will show you not that we're perfect, but that this is a much better way. God's way is much, much better than the way you're doing things in a godless fashion, from a godless place. And this is where conservatives have to be careful not to just conserve anything and everything that is from the 1950s or 1900s, because a lot of these ideas are much older than you or I have been told to appreciate. Ironically, going back to the Tucker Carlson speech, ironically, it's typically the people who are homeschooling their kids and they have a farm or they have a ranch and they work outdoors and they live out in the country, it's typically those people who are most frustrated about the radical environmentalists who are coming from the big cities. Now, we're not the ones who are out of touch. We're not the ones who are anti-science. We're the ones who are living according to knowledge every single day. That's how we have anything to eat. That's how you have anything to eat for that matter. Don't you know where your food comes from? No, they don't. And that's the answer. Rhetorical question. No, they don't. Every time they find out, they're horrified because they were insulated from all of that in the factory schools that they were brought up in, in the factory cities or the prisons almost near enough that they grew up in, in too many cases. They want more of us to move to the cities, concentrate in the cities. They want to take away our internal internal combustion engine vehicles so that we can't drive hundreds of miles to get this from there and take that to such and such a place to meet up with so-and-so. They want to make everything that's not in the cities, a national park or a wildlife refuge. Listen, if they're allowed to do that, we're looking at something which by orders of magnitude will make the Holocaust that the Nazis perpetrated in Europe look like child's play by comparison. If we don't cut it out already, knock it off already, 
we're going to be looking at something which makes Stalin's purges in Russia and the Soviet Union look minor. What Mao did with the Great Leap Forward in China and the Cultural Revolution in China look tame by comparison. These ideas have been tried, and here's the good news, here's the happy news, so have the ideas that I'm communicating. The ideas that I'm communicating have been tried as well. We need to go back to what the Word of God describes as being life-giving and beneficial and coming to a good end, pleasing God. Not because you trust me, but because we should trust God. Let God be true. He is true. He has no reason to lie. He's not a man that he should lie. But it being a Sunday morning, speaking of my family, my wife, my kids, I need to run and take them to church. I'm going to take them to church. I'm on the security detail this morning. It's an honor to serve in that capacity. I'll leave you with this. Our next episode is episode 700. I will be doing a recap of the last 100 episodes. So tune in for that. If you haven't been listening for very long, you might find it interesting. I do this every 100 episodes. Also, too, this is a third episode. Every third I do in the course of a month is subscriber only until the following month. So if you're listening to this in September and it was recorded in August, just know you can subscribe for 99 cents a month. Workman is worthy of his hire. Don't muzzle the ox as he's treading out the grain. This applies to me if you're benefiting from what I'm bringing to you in the way of explanations, instructions, making you more knowledgeable, making you wiser, helping you to have an understanding of these things that is useful to you. Do me a favor, subscribe for 99 cents a month. And then even as the subscriber-only episodes, every third come out, you can listen to them in real time as they come out. Do me a favor. Sign up today. Also, do me a favor, if you would, if you're not wanting to commit to 99 cents a month, which is, I think, a little bit silly. If you're listening anyways, you might as well pay 99 cents a month. Help me, encourage me, support me in this. Come on. But if you're not willing to, if you can't afford it, leave a review. Wherever it is that you listen to this podcast, leave a review. Make it honest. Don't just do the stars thing, but also write something, right? There was a great review left on Apple podcasts two years ago by Lynn M. 2014. She says, love this podcast, speaking truth from a biblical worldview on current events. It challenges personal growth and introspective thinking. Thanks, Lynn. I appreciate that. She gave it five stars. In fact, I've got seven ratings, not a ton, but seven ratings on Apple podcasts for an average of 4.4 out of five stars. That's pretty good, but you can help it to be even better. And if you don't think this is a five-star podcast, leave a four-star rating. If you think it's a one-star, do tell. (laughs) Do tell. Don't just give me a one-star. Don't just throw eggs and rotten tomatoes at me. But out of seven ratings on Apple Podcasts, six have said this is a five-star podcast. So if you think so, help that 4.4 to tick a little higher, closer to five, And tell somebody you know that is thinking about these things and could use some encouragement that they're not the only one thinking along these lines. We need to regain an awareness of what is our business, that we would mind our business. We've got to be intentional. We've got to be thinking about these things, be able to be reasonable in an evident way. Hopefully, I can help your friends and family you're going to share this podcast with to do that. 
And if they hate it, if they don't like it, well, tell them to write me at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com or you write me, you find out what they have to say about it and you tell me their feedback. They were like, hey, that's just, just dumb. Amateur hour in Greeley, Colorado. Well, tell me, right? Give me some feedback. Hopefully it's going to be constructive and not just abusive. I've got enough of the abusive ad hominems flying around these days. But are we actually trying to build one another up? Are we trying to spur one another on towards love and good deeds all the more as we see the day approaching? I hope so. We should be. We're called to that. But as I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.